Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I couldn't be more pumped for today's episode with my friend, Colin O'Brady. Colin has overcome a personal tragedy. I really resonate with his story because he actually suffered tremendous burns, um, as did my father. And like my father was told, he would never walk again. And not only did he walk, but he wound up becoming a triathlete and world record holder. Colin actually did the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is basically summiting the tallest peaks on earth across all seven continents, as well as skiing to the last degree of the North and South Poles. He also, although this episode was recorded before he just achieved this last extraordinary feat, just became the first person to cross Antarctica solo and unassisted. I met Colin in Israel. We actually spent 10 days traveling the country together and developed a really beautiful friendship. And I'm so inspired by his journey and how he chooses to use his challenges not as an excuse, but as a catalyst, not only for himself, but also through his nonprofit endeavors and his speaking as a catalyst to be of service in the world. So, so pumped to share with you Colin's story. This episode is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. Kettle and Fire I reached out to because I reached out to a friend of mine, John Durant, who I really respect, when I found out that I had gut permeability. Um, as many of you may know, the gut is actually our second nervous system. It's, it's our enteric nervous system, and it's where we produce about 90% of our serotonin. And I had been experiencing some issues and did a, um, a test of my gut and realized that I had both leaky gut and some imbalance in, in, my, in my gut. And so I, I decided I wanted to find the best bone broth of, to do a, a rebuild. And in doing my research, I found Kettle and Fire and was really kind of blown away by their product. And so I reached out to them and they graciously basically accepted to sponsor the podcast. And I couldn't be more fired up to sort of bring this bone broth to you because collagen actually has pro profound benefits, uh, many of which I'll detail later. But I really have had tremendous results from using the product and I'll share more in coming episodes. But if you're interested in bone broth for doing a gut rebuild, I highly recommend Kettle and Fire. So check them out, www.kettleandfire.com backslash peakmind, and all of the Peak Mind podcast listeners get 15% off their order. So super pumped about Kettle and Fire. Check them out. This episode is also brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is my favorite coffee. They have a Lion's Mane coffee, which keeps me focused throughout the day. Uh, Lion's Mane was actually used by monks uh, to improve focus and cognition. And uh, they've embed embedded their coffee with Lion's Mane. And it's organic. Uh, lots of coffees have mycotoxins, which uh, are molds that uh, are definitely deleterious to your health. So I try to avoid conventional coffee, which is also why I love Four Sigmatic's travel packets. Um, I've tried their matcha, 
their adaptogenic coffees. Um, I really, really love their product. You should check them out, www.foursigmatic.com backslash peak, and you get 15% off your order. Check them out. And without further ado, Colin O'Brady. I'm here with my friend Colin. What's up, man? Good to see you, my friend. Good to be here. Yeah, so Colin and I met uh, in Israel. Yeah, indeed. It was probably about a month ago now on on an epic adventure through the entire country um, on the reality trip through the Schusterman Foundation. Yeah, amazing, amazing experience. It was incredible. And I remember we actually, at the very beginning, it's always interesting, right at the beginning of a journey, you know, when you when you meet someone. And we met literally right at the yeah. very first instance on the way to the airport to pick everyone else up. And I was, you know, blown away both by your humility as well as by your story. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you, uh, we're willing to sit down with me. Yeah, well, it's good to be here, for yep. sure, for sure. So, by way of context, you were a world-class triathlete, Yeah. and you made a kind of conscientious shift at some point to uh, move more into climbing. Can you talk a little bit about um, what spurred on that change? So, a little bit about kind of what triathlon meant to you and yeah. then why you decided to uh, transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, really, it goes it goes back even before triathlon for me a little bit. Um, I had been an athlete throughout my life, uh, swimmer through college, and then after graduating from college, just kind of decided, you know, I thought I was going to be on my path to being a finance uh, guy uh, with my economics degree, but decided, you know, take a surfboard and a backpack and painting houses in the summer, why not go out and like kind of spread my wings in the world a little bit before I started settling into my career. Um, amazing experience except for I found myself in Thailand um, and was severely burned in a fire uh, when I was over there Um, and that left you know 25% of my body severely burned particularly my legs and feet Um, I was in a really rural part of Thailand and so there was not great medical facilities there was literally a cat running around my bed in the ICU where I had to have eight surgeries Um, and just kind of a really tragic predicament Um, and really scary particularly when the doctors were telling me hey Colin uh, it's likely you'll never walk again normally. Um, and so any, you know, I was a young man kind of becoming on the edge of adulthood. And uh, I think for anyone that'd be a terrible diagnosis, but certainly for someone who's as active and physical as me, that was, um, you know, pretty hard uh, pill to swallow to say the least. Um, but it was in that moment also that I think when we fast forward, that was 10 years ago through all the athletic things I've done, um, was a huge turning point in my life um, around, you know, mindset really. My mother came to my Um, bed uh, of my hospital room and she said you know I know the doctors are saying this but let's think about the future let's manifest a sort of a positive uh, mindset around what we could do if you could do anything what would it would mean to you to recover is what she was asking me let's set a goal Um, and my answer was all right mom like I'll play along I pretty much thought I was like okay like I don't think I'm gonna recover from this but like I'll play along if I could do anything I would complete a triathlon Um, I had been a swimmer in college um, I always loved pushing my body, but triathlon, biking, running, not anything I'd ever done competitively, but whatever in my mind that was sort of um, symbolic of being very physically able, I yeah. suppose. Um, and so that was my goal. Um, and so it had been three three months until I got back home in the United States. I'd been carried on and off the plane. I was in a wheelchair. My mom said to me, great, you've got this big triathlon goal out there. Today you need to figure out how to take one single step. 
Uh, I was sitting in my wheelchair, she took a chair from our kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair and said, all right, you need to figure out how to take that step. And that's really where it began for me. Um, so flash forward 18 months from my accident, I signed up for the Chicago Triathlon. I had moved to Chicago and started a job in finance trading commodities. And I uh, raced the Chicago Triathlon after this long sort of road to recovery and learning how to walk again. And crossing that finish line was just a very joyous moment for me to say like, hey, like I was told I might never walk again. And I just swam a mile, biked 25 miles, ran 6.2 miles and crossed this finish line. And then the craziest cherry on top was not only had I finished the race, but I actually found out when I checked the results that I had actually won the entire race. No way. <laughs> beating 5,000 other participants. Your first triathlon? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. That's amazing. So Chicago Triathlon has almost 5,000 participants, and I placed first out of everyone um, that was competing that day, all the amateurs. And it was just a credible moment. Um, and it was, you know, it's funny when I look back, of course, the achievement itself, winning this big race um, in itself changed the trajectory of my life. But really, it was about this moment of like, wow, like, I don't think of myself as any better or more talented than any other person. What I realized is that, like, I think we all have this deep level of potential inside of us that can be unlocked, that we can all achieve amazing things. We have reservoirs of untapped potential. And through this really tragic moment, I was sort of forced to dive into it and bring that out of myself. Um, and so that learning uh, for me really has charted my path for the next really 10 years as I, you know, quit my day job, became a professional triathlete, um, raced, you know, triathlons in 25 countries, six different continents all over the world, representing the U.S. in international competition. Um, and then, you know, sorry, there's a very long answer to your initial question, but, um, you know, diving into this mountaineering. So two years ago, I kind of got to a point where I was like, this triathlon thing's been amazing. There's still a pathway for me to do this for many more years. However, I feel like I want to do something that still pushes my body in this way, but that has a larger sort of impact in the world. Um, and so I dreamed up this mountaineering world record attempt to A, fuel my spirit to push my body and my limits to the next level, but also with this hope to build a media campaign, a nonprofit campaign around inspiring others, particularly kids, to get outside, explore, live active, healthy lives, live you know healthy, healthy lives. Um, and so I with my fiance, Jenna and I sort of dreamed up this project, which we coined the name Beyond 7-2. And the goal was to set the world record for something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So that's to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as complete expeditions in both the North Pole and the South Pole, um, and do that in hopefully world record time, which at the end of last year, um, or a year ago, I should say, um, I completed in 139 days, and I became the new world record holder for both the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I remember you telling me, I didn't actually know about the burn story, uh, and I'd love to unpack the whole journey, but um, my father actually, which we never shared this together, but my father was had third-degree burns on his legs and was told he'd never walk again. Mm. Wow. And it was one of the most formative experiences in his life. Yeah. Um, how did you go from, how did you go, what was the mindset shift when you talk about taking that first step, right? So... What it reminded me a little bit of like, and I think you and I have talked about this before, like touching the void when the, when the yeah. climber was left. And he talks about segmenting, or Eric Reitens talks about this in his SEAL training. Instead of focusing on this huge uh, behemoth obstacle in front of you, you know, taking literally 10 feet at a time. Yeah. Um, what, was your, what was your mindset like as you went from hospital bed? It sounds like you had a number of surgeries. 
what was your what was your mindset like just to get out of the hospital bed? What was that? If you can take us back, like what went through your mind to get you from a place of of taking that first step and even conceiving of the fact that you could race in the triathlon? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know. I really have to give a lot of credit to my mother, honestly, um, in this process because she, um, I don't want to say she was placating me, but she certainly was daring me to dream bigger than what was right in front of me. Um, and so the first step of that, and this is what I tell sort of other people in terms of this process, because hopefully anyone watching or can, you know, seeing this out there, don't have to get burned in a fire to learn this lesson, but we all face certain setbacks in our life and it's easy to give up. It's easy to quit. It's easy to feel really discouraged. And so the, the big thing for me was having this large overarching guiding goal, which was that triathlon. Mm. Um, however, that also seems super unattainable. I mean, I'm looking down, if you see the photos of my legs, I mean, it's horrific. I'm, you know, bandaged to my waist and whatever. And so to say this big goal, it's like, okay, like, yeah, that's a really nice thing to say. Like you're dreaming. Um, but then the second gift my mom gave me was that chair, hmm. was this really tangible, hey, you want to race a triathlon? That's somewhere down the road in the future. But like, here is one tangible, literally in my case, tangible step that you can take towards that. Hmm. And, and, and giving me the power to say like, today, Colin, your goal is that. So that mindset around all of a sudden I could focus and you mentioned touching the void, you mentioned the SEAL training, like segmenting that, you know, that guy was fighting for his life and he was miles and miles away from his camp with two broken legs. Um, but he was like, okay, can I walk to that rock or can I crawl to that rock that's five steps away from me? Um, and to me, that was such a powerful lesson. Um, I actually, uh, now it's, it's, it's in my, in my car with me outside. Um, but I, you pretty much always have it with me. Um, I carry around this small rock, which is a rock from the summit of Mount Everest. And the reason that I bring that with me everywhere is it's a small totem for me, but it's a reminder of the same principles that we're talking about, which is there's a photo of me standing at the bottom of Mount Everest and looking up and it's the biggest mountain in the world for the way that the sequence worked in my project. It was the eight of nine expeditions. So I've been going for a hundred plus days at this point. I'm exhausted and now I'm staring up at the tallest mountain in the world. And this rock that I carry around is symbolic of that same thing as that same step, which is even Mount Everest, even the biggest mountain in the entire world can be broken down to its smallest component parts, a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, reaching to the summit. So um, maybe it's simple, but I believe have that big aspirational goal, put that out there, fix it in your mind. Imagine yourself reaching the summit. Imagine yourself crossing the finish line of the triathlon, whatever that may be. You want to start a business. You want to make money. You want to be in love. It doesn't matter what that is, but then ask yourself, Okay, right now, what is that first step? What is that tiny little rock that you can stack to get one little step further? Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's the mindset that has been really powerful and led to uh, my success, I think. Yeah, one of the things that struck me about you is this notion of just having this, this extraordinary vision, right? So you had both the vision, but then also the strategic mind to think about how do you break that down and segment it, as, as we've discussed, into these kind of incremental steps. For those who are, you know, confronting their own great challenges, um, obviously that could be a metaphor. W what have been some of the other, if you would say, key qualities for you in your mindset that has enabled you to achieve some of these extraordinary goals? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, as we've talked about, we've talked about taking a step forward. We've talked about, you know, these tiny little rocks and stacking that. Um, but the truth is, is this ultimately a linear path, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so the path between me taking that first step and me racing the triathlon wasn't like another 18 days where I just got stronger and more fit and better and this, or when I set this massive goal like, hey, I'm not a professional mountaineer, but I'm going to go try to break two of the most coveted mountain wearing world records in the world. It's like kind of like, where's that coming from? Like, that's crazy. Do you, what, how much do you know about climbing? Have you been at high altitude before? You know, all of those things. Like, I failed and had setbacks numerous times along the way. Um, I think a good example, actually, um, even from sort of, it equates to more of an entrepreneur's mindset, was this, this world record project. Like, this project took more than, you know, we can talk about grit, we can talk about perseverance, which I think is a valuable thing to talk about, but it also took just strategic thought. Like, we had this idea, and to do that, just the baseline of doing that, let alone our charitable goals on stuff, like, costs... A significant amount of money that we didn't have um, it we needed people we needed to find people on the ground in nine different locations to help us to the logistics to facilitate this and then if we wanted our charitable principles to be good we needed to figure out a PR strategy a media strategy a social media strategy and then none of those things are I, am I an expert in I feel more of an expert now but was I an expert in nor was Jenna an expert in and so for us it was a willingness to say hey, we don't know how to do this. We have this big vision. Same with triathlon. I want to do a triathlon. I don't know the first thing about like cycling in a triathlon or what that looks like, but being willing to say, I don't know how to do this, but I can learn. Mm -hmm. Teach me. Inviting people in and saying like, hey, I don't know anything about PR, but I think I have that one friend that told me once he worked at this PR company, like, let me have coffee with him. And like, he's like, yeah, here's what I can tell you. And you should talk to these five people and just learning as well as so failing. Getting people to like support this project, like in the end we had you know great sponsors, you know Nike was a sponsor, Columbia Mountain Hardware, some great brands supported us. But like let me tell you, the first hundred people we pitched this idea to were like, yeah, like who are you? What? No, like that's crazy. You're not, you're not going to accomplish this. Right. And so when we talk about those segments, it is those are not always linear steps towards the summit. If we're using the mountain metaphor, sure. those are often side steps or two steps back or whatever. But you are still going, okay, I tried my very best today and that totally failed. That totally didn't work. But all right, today's a new day. What can I do today? Maybe someone's going to say yes today. Maybe I'm going to get one more introduction today that's going to help me doing that. And so I think if you boil that down, that's called you know, perseverance, I suppose, but also just in, in a segmented way of not getting discouraged. Like I'm not getting any closer to the summit because even the steps that seem like side steps or steps back are all a part of the whole of the journey. Yes. Iterative learning. I mean, I think one of the one of the distinctions that, that struck me when you told me the story is so many people get caught up in the sort of analysis paralysis, right? It's like, oh, you know, you have a dream. You were, you were a very well-accomplished triathlete, and then you were looking to, you know, do, do this incredible mountaineering journey, which I can understand. If I, if you, if I were a, an executive right. and you came in and you were like, hang on, uh, you're not exactly a climber. How do you right. anticipate bringing a world record? I mean, it's a stretch, right? Right, for but, sure. But... But that's the beauty, right? It's just as it was a stretch for you to think about when you were burned, um, you know, running that first triathlon. So throwing yourself ostensibly, it sounds like you did, in the deep end and figuring out, figuring at, figuring it out based based on failures, based on sort of, you know, referrals, and and yeah. I think that's super helpful, especially for for the entrepreneurial minded, um, and also anyone facing a challenge is that notion. Unfortunately, we get so condition to think that failure is this insurmountable goal but actually it's like it was edison failed like ten thousand times right. Said, right before doing the life right. you know realizing the light bulb um 
That's that's beautiful. Let's let's keep on the business for a second. I, I remember you saying that you went off and you know obviously you were you had this. One of the other things I love is you talk about being of service, right? So it wasn't just you had this personal goal, right, which was break the world record, which motivates a lot of people, um, but you also had this this vision to give back. So that I imagine uh, was a motivator. How did you how did you amidst the failure? kind of like strategically uh, uh, hone your pitch and, yeah. your, and your strategy to enable you to be successful. Because I, I, I've done my own fundraising and, and been down the wire, like yeah. literally a week or it's a go or no go, yeah. um, back when we were um, building building a festival and working with the team and you know, things happen and you're like, okay, um, we have one week, right. uh, we have one week to figure out X, Y, and Z or it's not happening. So how did you deal with those obstacles? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you touched on the sort of charitable component of this. For this, was that was our North Star. Um, you know, this project, this wasn't like, let's do this, oh, we should do some good in the world. It was completely the opposite. It was like, we want to do some good in the world. How can we do this? Oh, I'm a professional athlete, and I could build a platform around that. And what's the charitable vision, just so, so people have context? Yeah, yeah, so um, our, our goal was to um, basically inspire kids to live active, healthy lives. You know, I believe that, you know, the childhood obesity epidemic is out of control in this country, um, and really in other parts of the world as well. Um, and really, you know, an, an inspirational campaign around health and wellness um, that grew beyond that, um, honestly, and it grew into education. We ended up working with a bunch of teachers nationwide and bringing this story into the classroom for them as a teaching model. And it was amazing to see actually other people's creativity with this story because, excuse me, um, not only were they bringing it into the classroom, we thought, okay, this is about health, this is about getting ex outside, this is about goal setting exploration. All of a sudden we have science teachers reaching out to us and saying, hey, like we're doing a STEM curriculum around this, around like atmospheric pressure and the altitude, but your story is a great like touch piece for them to see this sort of like tangible real-time thing that's happening. We can follow your blog and social media every day. And then that gives me a great way to get the kids excited to talk about, you know, science or rock formations or the tectonic plates and like these type of things. So it was amazing to see, it's almost like we kind of seeded this catalyst with this story and educators around the country, whether that was PE curriculums with movement and health, um, you know, or dietitians in health class, or was that, like I said, science teachers, uh, sociology, people were saying like, oh, well, let's follow Colin for this, you know, it's basically the second semester of school, right? So it was, you know, from January to June. Um, and they're like, let's follow him around. And each country do, let's do a deep dive into the culture and like, what's Nepal like versus what's Tanzania like? And what do people, what food do they eat over there? So it was crazy and really cool to see this form into this sort of like platform for education, wellness, aspirational goal setting. Um, and that was, again, like we had a big vision and goal around that, but it definitely grew beyond our wildest dreams um, in that sense. And that and that lives on now as we continue, you know, for me, it's, a, it's still a passion of mine. And as I move forward, you know, with my nonprofit to continue to, to work in the schools and you know, work with kids um, on a number of different levels. So that was really the guiding vision behind it. And as you said, just in terms of like pitching, fundraising, all that kind of stuff, I think when you're doing something, at least I believe this has been my experience, when you're doing something that is of greater purpose than your own sort of personal success, you are that much more engaged, that much more driven. Um, you know, there's two, two elements. You mentioned fundraising, and yeah, like when things were down to the wire, it didn't look like we were gonna get the right stakeholders to pull this off, like that was guiding me. I was like, I wanna do this, and not just because like, I wanna see if I can climb Everest and make the Northern South Pole. I wanna do this because I believe this has a larger value um, in the world. And then 
At the same time, fast forward to actually pulling it off and being able to do the project, you know, I'm out there on this project and I'm like a hundred and however many days in, it's minus 40 degrees outside, I'm in a tent, a storm's blowing in, I'm second guessing like, is this viable, am I gonna make it, Do I, am I strong enough, or whatever, and in that moment I'm thinking, wow, like, there are literally, ultimately, you know, we had 50 million views on Snapchat, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so the amount of people that are beginning following along this project, not pressure, but in a good way. It's like, kids are looking up to this right now as a way of saying, he's saying, I can do anything if I set my mind to it. So I certainly, as things got hard, felt um, a positive energy and inspiration from those following on. Like, I was hoping to inspire them, but in the end, they inspired me. Yeah. to keep going so I think that that energetic synergy was really amazing to you know add to the success of it both ways incredible yeah you uh, the accountability of knowing that you have 50 million uh, views and people watching you throughout right. the journey that's incredible so what 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 did go through your mind in those moments because I imagine especially given the the speed challenge uh in terms of your your summit goals like I remember you can you can you share um, with those with those listening and watching, like you told me a little bit of like your 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 Everest ascent, yeah, right, which is obviously you know I mean I'd love to hear about that, but then also going from Everest and considering doing Denali, I think in a in very short order, yeah, very short yeah. order. Can you can you break that down for us? So what happened was um, we getting to the end of the project, the last two mountains. So I should actually start first. So normally, the one advantage of climbing these mountains back to back, um, for those that don't know this, to get in the high altitudes of the mountain, your body needs to acclimatize, which means your body needs to get used to thinner air and you move up slower. So usually the way people climb Mount Everest is there's base camp and there's four camps progressively higher. You climb up higher, your body gets used to the thin air, and then you can move up. If you were to get dropped off on the summit of Everest from sea level, you would last about a minute before you passed out and died because your body wasn't ready. But as you slowly go up, your body can, you know, can't be up there for like that long, but you can be up there for more than a minute, basically. Even with supplemental oxygen, um, you, you couldn't handle it right from street level, basically. The expedition right before Everest was the North Pole. That's at sea level. Obviously, you're just floating around on sea ice out there. And I was stuck there for an additional eight days. So I was hoping that I would still have the acclimatization from previous mountains, but I lost all of that. Then I arrived to Everest. I was the very last person to arrive to Mount Everest about a month later than the average other climber that arrived there because of the North Pole being delayed. And so normally you have eight weeks to climb Everest. I had three weeks to climb Everest all the way from sea level. So it was already going to be like a pretty And you weren't acclimatized. And I was not acclimatized. Because you had just, you yeah. just thrown that. <laughs> exactly. So it was pretty, you know, obviously a huge challenge. And that's why I say there was this photo of me, like I mentioned before, standing at the bottom looking up. Yeah. That's also, I know it's playing in my mind there of all of that. It's not just like, oh, Everest, it's a big mountain. It's like, Everest, oh, Hard as it is already, now all of the odds are stacked against you for all these other reasons yeah. as well. Um, so I make, I, I finally move my way up through the higher camps, and I've been there for a few weeks at this point. It's kind of getting on the end of the ever season, and I make a push for the summit. I'm climbing with just myself on a Sherpa by the name of Pasein Bodhi, who I met climbing in Nepal the year previous, um, and we decided to go for the summit to kind of make a big push for the summit, and we get up just to camp four, which is the last camp before the summit, and a huge storm blows in. Just a massive storm, kind of out of nowhere, 50, 60 mile per hour winds, it takes us two hours to set our tent up, and we realize like there's no chance we're going for the summit. Like Our best hope is just like survive the night and make it down. If you've ever read John Cracker's In the Thin Air, or any set of books about Everest, like camp four, also known as the South Call, is sort of littered with stories of death and tragedy. Um, and so to be in that moment, knowing the history of this mountain in a huge storm, in like very scary moment for so I had to descend. Um, 
And a lot of people say, you know, you go to Camp 4 and you wait out a storm, like you're probably not going to have the energy or supplies and everything to get back up there. Um, but fortunately, after a few days, the weather cleared and we decided to give it another shot. So we climbed all the way back up, get up to Camp 4. And in this moment, like, I'm scared. Like, I'm legitimately scared. I've seen how quick the weather can change. The forecast isn't a whole lot different. Um, and I call home to Jenna on the satellite phone, actually, and I say, you know, Jenna, like, um, I don't know what to do here. Like, if the weather changes, I can see how bad it would be if I was up high on the mountain and didn't have my tent. And an incredible moment of bravery, to be honest. Like, she said, Colin, like, I believe in you. Like, you've trained for this. Like, you're right on the edge of, like, achieving your goal. Like, people are going to summit Everest tonight. There's no reason you can't be one of them. Like, go for it. Um, and I, I mean, I drove so much strength from that. I also know that she hung up that phone and was crying and going like, all I wanted to do is tell him to come down. Right. Uh, you know, I love him, but we were kind of in this together and she knew like, that's what I needed. And I, I equate that also to my mother. Like she was freaked out in the hospital room in Thailand and she could have come in and cried with me and been scared with me. But instead, you know, another strong woman in my life comes in and says like, know what? Let's dream about the future. Um, and so both of those moments are huge turning points for me and a testament to the strength of the women in my life that I'm so you know grateful to have. Without them, I would know, be nothing. I wouldn't be where I was at all. Um, so the success is their success through and through. Um, but anyways, we get up. I do, I do end up summoning Everest that night. Um, and on the, on the flip side, unfortunately, two people who were climbing that day did pass away um, while we were climbing. Not, that, not anyone who I knew, but because of the weather and the altitude and all that sort of stuff. So my fear in going up that day was pretty justified. And there was another, you know, s several evacuation from severe frostbite and that kind of stuff. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was a really intense experience. And then I get back down to Camp 4. I didn't know of those people passing away until I was down off the mountain. Um, but I, I called Jenna again on the cell phone when I get back down to Camp 4. And I said, I made it. Like, I made it to the summit. Like, I did it, like I climbed Everest, um, you know, I can make my way back down to base camp in the next few days. And she kind of like hesitates and she's like, so, um, I'm gonna need you to put your boots back on. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I heard you, that phone's breaking up. And she's like, yeah, so, um, we've been doing some math and calculations back home. I didn't want to tell you this before, but it just so happens that if you can get down and summit Denali in the next week, you'll set not one, but two world records. So not only the Explorers Grand Slam world record, which is the seven summits plus the North and South Pole, the record that I've been really focused on, but I actually had a chance at setting just the seven summits record. Even though I had been to the poles, I was on paces at the seven summits record, Incredible. which in a lot of ways is an even more sort of prestigious um, mountaineering record. Of course, I was intrigued, but I was like, wait, I, like, I, what? I mean, I'm going to crawl in my tent right now. She's like, no, okay, put your boots back on. Um, you need to climb back down to base camp now. And base camp, I've arranged for a helicopter that's going to take you to Kathmandu. There's not enough time for you to stay overnight in a hotel in Kathmandu, but an evening flight is going to take you from Kathmandu to Dubai, Dubai to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage. And after all that flight time, you'll have about three or four days to climb Denali. I know that normally takes three weeks, but like if you can do that, you'll be not just a three one, days. but a two-time world record holder. <laughs> um, oh my God! Like again, let me just let me just iterate this for for effect because I'm kind of I'm still blown away, even though I've heard this once before. So you literally got off of Everest six, after successfully summiting the, the tallest peak in the world, and were then to get on not just one connecting flight, but literally like hustle down, <laughs> get on like four connecting flights, 
around the world to summit Denali, not an insignificant no, mountain in its no, own regard. No, very not. In, in three days. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, and you thought, you thought in your mind, you're like, yeah, I can do this. I, I mean, I thought I'm gonna give it my best shot. That's wow. what I thought. And it, because I think we, it's obvious, but not only is it ever to that, but this is day 135 of a hundred. You know, like I started in January, whatever, with this project. It's now May, whatever. You know, so it's not only that, but it's like. I was exhausted before I even arrived at Everest. I was coming from the North Pole. That's right. right. Yeah, so it wasn't like, like well-rested. Like, yeah, it's not like I was like, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, don't, I was running on fumes for sure. So we get to Denali. Fortunately, um, I climb with different people on these mountains. A couple of mountains I climb completely alone. Um, but I sort of had different people meet me to, you know, be re-energized. And one of my really old and dear friends, a guy named Tucker Cunningham, met me on Denali. And he had actually been over there a little bit for himself acclimatizing, knowing I was going to come. He didn't think we are going to have to climb that fast. But... Um, <laughs> So he meets me down at the base of Denali, and we start climbing up, and I tell him, like, yo, we got to do this, like, real fast now. So we go up about halfway up the mountain, and we're camping at about 14,000 feet. The summit's at 20,000 feet, and we've got about 24 hours or so to get to the summit at this point to get the second record, and all of a sudden, just a huge storm blows in, you know, 60, 70 mile per hour winds, um, you know, brutal wind chill. Like you said, Denali, like Denali in itself is a significant, significant yeah. mountain. Um, I think about only 30% of people um, in any given season that attempt it actually make the summit of the mountain. Um, and that's because it's a 20,000 foot mountain. It's in Alaska. It's right on the Bering Sea. So when weather comes in, just mm -hmm. it's brutal. Um, a ton of precip. Like it's a hard and challenging mountain to climb. Um, and so this huge storm blows in and we call back, you know, to the sat phone and say like, all right, what's the weather forecast looking like? Is this thing just blowing through? And it's like, no, this, this weather is supposed to be here for the next eight days. Like you're like, in, and that's common on Denali. Like the stories you hear from Denali, people are like, yeah, that happens. You get in your tent, you sit there for a week, you dig yourself out, and then you hope to continue with the expedition if you're not too worn out from the storm. We're like, well, we have one day. What do you want to do? Um, and so Tucker and I go to bed and think like maybe in the morning, like, I don't know, something else will happen. And we, we wake up in the next morning and no different. I mean, we're just getting beaten down by wind. Um, there's a little bit of blue sky, but it's just a relentless amount of wind. And so I say to Tucker, we have this kind of like whole conversation about like, what do you think? Like, like, and we're still two camps below where you normally go to the summit. There's no, another camp in the summit. We, there's no way we're like carrying our stuff up. So can we try to push from the summit all the way from here? Mm. Best case, we're 12 hours climbing from the summit in good conditions, and it's brutal conditions. And so we have this com funny kind of a funny conversation, but again, it goes back to this segmenting thing. Um, I love this quote, which is um, attributed to... Depends on who you ask, either Confucius or Henry Ford. I like to think of that Confucius said it first, but uh, you can debate that on the internet. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, he who says he can and he who says he can't are both usually right. Yeah. Um, and again, with the segmenting, I say, Tucker, do you think we can climb for 15 minutes? Can we gear up, put all our shit on, and walk out there for 15 minutes? And then, like, we'll see. And he was like, bro, like, I'm here for you. I believe in you. Like, I'm less tired. He's like, I'm less tired than you are. Yeah. So, like, sure, I'm just man. getting going. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, and he's an awesome, super strong, great climber. Um, and he has the strength and courage. And honestly, his courage, like, like you know, inspires me. And so we put all our gear on. You know, we go out in this crazy storm. We're walking out. And there's a few other tents in this camp, which is known as 14 camp. It's 14,000 feet. And we're walking past the camp. And a guy unzips his tent and pokes his head out. And he's like, hey, um, oh, our 
are you guys gonna bail out of here too? We're thinking about going back down to base camp and like waiting, I don't know, this storm, whatever. And we're like, nah man, we're gonna go drive for the summit. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, get back in your tent. Like, get back in your tent. This is yeah, ridiculous. You're and crazy. Like, yeah. And we're totally like, no, crazy. no. So like, I mean, just kind of hammers on the fact that no one is planning to climb this no. day. Like, this is like, whatever. Um, and so we go for 15 minutes. I mean, as simple as that. Like, it, I mean, I, I, I can look back and see that that was my process, this sort of like breaking things down to small, mm -hmm. but it almost was intuitive rather than direct thinking about that. But I was like, let's go for 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, we kind of look at each other. I'm like, how are your hands? How are your feet? Everything holding up? Like, are you cold? No, I'm good. Can you go another 15 minutes? Great. Let's go another 15 minutes. Can you go another 30? And it just goes on like that for 30 minutes, another hour, another hour, another 15. And before we know it, we're halfway up, you know, halfway up to the top. I'm like, you want to keep going? And, you know, I think we know where this ends, but which it ends with um, us reaching the summit. Um, but I, before that, we get about, we're up 30 minutes below the summit, and Tucker's actually had climbed Denali one time before. It was my first time on the mountain. And I see him start, like, you know, fist pumping. And I'm, like, pretty delirious. And I look over, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, my only thought is, I'm about to set two world records, right? But my only thought in that moment was, how does he have the energy to put his arms above his head right now? Like, I have, like, that level of drag. Real talk, yeah. yeah. And so when, uh, I, you know, I take my GoPro out, when I take my last few steps to the summit, set the two world records, and, of course, I embrace Tucker, and there's this video clip of me, and you would think, like, this guy just set two world records, like, on top of the world, whatever. But the look on my face is just, like, utter, like, I don't know, relief, exhaustion, excitement, I don't know, but just, like, <laughs> just totally spent, like on the limit and you still have to get down and then of course the summit, <laughs> I always like to say the summit is only halfway you can only really celebrate when you come back down but it was one of those just epic moments where you know we believed in ourselves we pushed through we definitely pushed you know perceived boundaries and limits um, to get there and I think ultimately to do something you know that literally no other human being had ever done before um, in that duration of time was obviously going to take an extra special um, effort but certainly in all of those moments and like climbing up that last mountain and even coming back down to Nali all I could think about was cataloging cataloging all the experiences that got me there cataloging the burn accident my mother's support my family support my, many people that I haven't mentioned in this conversation of course that helped support you know and get us there certainly what Jenna and I created being able to take this idea and turn it into this larger vision and execute on it um, and so for me this has never been a, a one-man celebration. This is a collective effort of hundreds of people and the energy from thousands of people around the world have gone into you know, really making this a successful thing, um, but certainly a moment that I'll never forget and cherish forever. So. Respect. <laughs> Respect. Um, it's unbelievable. Like, truly unbelievable. I, when, you, when, when you actually think about not just the physical challenges, but I can't even imagine the psychological um, barriers you transcended in that in that journey. Is there any? Do you have any? I mean, you you've underlined a couple of principles like segmenting, but is there anything that you do on a daily basis to like maintain that mindset? Like as you look at approaching further challenges. In other words, like how would you, is there anything that you could distill that other people could apply in their own yeah. lives? Yeah. Um, you know, meditation has been a valuable daily practice for me. Um, do you I, do TM, Vipassana? Yeah, so I was introduced to Vipassana actually about six years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, uh, it's a Turkish girl, her name's Eche, 
um, her and her husband came and saw me race a triathlon in my uh, professional triathlon days, and she's she's great. She's like a pretty like you know, yogi, spiritual person. Um, and I grew up in a actually pretty like hippie background family, but I never really meditated much. And she's like, so I've watched you compete at this sport. I don't really understand sports is what she said. She's like, not really my thing. She's like, but what I can tell is you're some of the best athletes in the world competing. And it just seems like it's only honestly more mental than physical. That was her observation, which I think is a very astute observation. And I said, yeah, like for 100%, like I'm battling my mind out there. I mean, I train my body all the time, but I'm battling my mind out there. And she said, well, I think that you should really get into meditation. I think it could be valuable. Um, like, great, so where do you think I should start? My question, you know? And she said, well, there's these 10 day Vipassana meditation retreats. No reading, no writing, completely silent. You know, you're mm -hmm. cut off from the outside world. And as you may have gathered from this interview, um, kind of like an all or nothing kind of guy. <laughs> You're like, forget 10 minutes, just yeah, go 10 days. Exactly. I was just like, I was like, great, I'll sign me up. Yeah. And so there's a center um, in Washington, I'm from Portland, Oregon, so there's a center about an hour north of Portland um, in Onalaska, Washington. So um, a few months after this race, it was my off season. So my, my off season for triathlon is only a couple of weeks generally. And usually that's like the only time of the year that I'm not like training and all that sort of stuff. And usually it's my fellow racing buddies you know we go at least have a few beers something like that it's kind of the only time of the year where we can really let loose and i was mm -hmm. like, like what are you doing for your off season i was like i'm gonna go sit in silence by myself for 10 days and like <laughs> you're out of your mind yeah. um literally but i did the meditation my stepfather actually he drove me to the uh vipassana meditation and he was like yeah, I'm gonna hang here in the parking lot for about an hour because I've never really heard you shut up like for a minute or two in your life. So <laughs> you're gonna quickly realize it's a terrible idea and like I'll be here to drive you home. Uh, but sure enough, I stayed the whole 10 days um, and it was a life changing experience for me. It really mm -hmm. was. Um, it was the first time that, of course, I dove into meditation, like I um, said before. But although the benefits were strong for me in terms of peak performance as an athlete, I would rank that as like the 10th most important thing that I learned in there. Um, it was just a, a way, and I know that you know, you've had a long standing meditation practice yourself, but um, for me, it was a way of just tapping into for the first time in a while to have my own sort of awareness of self, awareness of others, um, and empathy, a compassion um, that um, I think I have in, in some regard before this, but certainly amplified those emotions for me, and that's had such positive lasting impact on me um, throughout many layers of my life. So in terms of uh, what has it, you know, I've brought that into my daily life. I've gone back and done several other 10-day meditation retreats, um, just kind of to re-energize the practice. But really, I think it's, it's, a, it's a daily um, piece of awareness and something that I carry with me all the time. And that can be, you know, I travel a lot, so sometimes my schedule is all over the place, but I do try to have, you know, a daily sit where I'm, you know, you know, I'm 10 or 15 minutes even, you know, mm -hmm. not 10 days, but, you know, some time to really sit by myself. But I also find myself um, able to tap into that in, in different moments, you know, like I was in New York a couple times this month, and, like, maybe I'm sitting on the subway, and even, maybe my eyes aren't even, are open, but it's a way of, like, kind of, like, oh, like, you know. How's my posture feeling right now? Kind of just checking in with my body, checking in with myself, like having just like a general awareness um, and also being able to read other people in that way. Um, so that's a evolution for me, but that is something that has definitely transformed my life over the last, you know, five or six years um, and is something that I will continue to practice and learn and evolve from um, as I go, for sure. I love it. Do you have any other, um, and I'll link up um, in the notes, Goenka, the, the Vipassana, the 10 days, yeah. such a powerful um, such a powerful program. And I think, unfortunately, there's some people have 
sort of time scarcity, but it's all by donation, so yeah. it's accessible to anyone. No, I mean, um, it's, to me, that's I mean, I, that that's worth a shout out because yeah. to me, I think I know I'm a entrepreneur, business type of minded person, and like what he's done to me is like I think it should be like a Harvard business like case study or something. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who don't know, this very short story. Um, this Bur Burmese guy, now Myanmar, um, wanted to bring this teaching to the West and basically showed up in the West and said, oh, I'm going to teach like 10 people like how to meditate and do these 10-day retreats. And after you're done, if you feel like donating like a few dollars to like pay for the food or whatever, you can. But seriously, like no big deal. If not, I'm just happy to like teach you this. That's incredible. And that has now literally, there's no marketing. There's barely a website. It's just so you can sign up. It's all word of mouth. And there are now 275 centers around the world, mm -hmm. which are constantly packed but still the same ethos it is completely free the all of the people working there are donating their time and in service um the food everything just completely on a donation basis and there's like beautiful structures and pagodas and meditation halls and dorms and sheets and like all the services and things you need and you realize you're like wow that has spread all over the world just by word of mouth just by someone seeing this conversation being like i should check that out like yeah. so um yeah, Cuenca. I mean, he's not even he's not with us anymore. Um, but, but his legacy, his legacy continuously lives on, and it's a really special thing. Yeah, it, it is. I'm I'm blown away by exactly what you said. I mean, to talk about when when a good idea takes root, how it can grow, yeah. and the fact that everyone is there really to do the deep work uh, on themselves, but also um, in service. Yeah, uh, it's it's profound. Yeah. Um, are there any other, do you have like a morning routine? Are there any other practices aside from meditation that you use? Like now, for example, you're, I mean, I imagine maybe you're training, but you're not necessarily, you're not on top of a mountain. Yeah. yeah or at least yeah, you were yeah, last yeah, yeah. night. Yeah. So like, what do you do to maintain? And, and maybe it is, it's interesting. I was, I was reading Tim, uh, Tim Ferriss's four hour, four hour body last night. And, uh, you know, he's talking about everything from, you know, Kenyan runners and like, you know, different types of muscle fibers, et cetera. But then he also said, you know, certain athletes, it's actually, they don't try to sustain peak performance all the time. Actually, the importance of seasons, right? So, like, yeah. just as a sports team would have, um, you know, playoff season, but then they have to have an off season. You need that sort of off season to sort of um, let yourself go a little bit, and then you tighten it back in as opposed to, I mean, yeah. do you subscribe to that theory? Or? Yeah, I 100% do, and that's something that I learned the hard way through my early professional athletic career, actually. Um, I think that particularly in, in our culture in the United States, I think there's sort of like a no pain, no gain, or more the better type of mentality of like the road to success is like, I put in more hours than this and that, whatever. And I do believe in putting in the hard work. I do believe in putting in time. I also believe in balance. I believe that, you know, simple metaphors as muscles, like muscles, we work them out and they actually grow when we let them rest and recover. Um, and so right now where I'm personally at is, is in, the, in, a, in that sort of that cycle. Last year, um, I you know I was was actually doing that project. I had been a professional athlete all the way up until I did that. I hadn't even stopped racing triathlon until a couple now. Raced Ironman Japan in August, and then when I started this in December, um, and so that was like straight in, straight in, straight in, straight in. So when I got back from this, I was kind of like, I need to like chill for a second. And then now I've been building back in uh, this year, and I'm getting ready um, at some point soon to announce my next project, which will certainly ramp up my training. Um, but this year has been uh, a time when, yeah, I've stayed physically active. Yeah, I've you know, climbed some mountains this year. I've worked out, whatever. But in an unstructured way, which as a professional athlete is not super common, um, 
you know, or at least not natural for me. I'm like, oh my god, oh, what's my routine? What's my this? Um, but it's been great for me. It's it's I, it's necessary for me to rest. I think if I had just gone straight back into training from this, like, oh, I'm gonna give myself a week to rest and recover, and then this, it, I would have trashed myself, and the longevity wouldn't have been there. You know, like I mentioned earlier in my triathlon career, as a as a young pro, I started training with some of the top athletes in the world. You know, I was training in a training camp with multiple world champions, Olympic medalists, whatever, and I started to try to keep up with every single workout that they did. And I trained really well for three months, raced really well, and then completely fell apart to the point where my testosterone levels were that of a 90-year-old man. Um, I could barely get out of bed. And it was, like I said, a lesson learned the hard way on, wait, these people took, you know, these people were 10 years ahead of me in their professional athletic careers. They've took the amount of time to build up to that. They didn't start there. And I was starting my professional career. Of course I couldn't quite sustain their level of intensity yet. I've learned now how to build towards that. I've learned how to take care of my body over 139 days consecutively. Mm. But even with this mountaineering project, it was like most people would climb on these mountains and be so exhausted coming up on these mountains that flying to another mountain was inconceivable. And I figured out how to measure out that energy which is exactly what you're saying, which was, when I was climbing on these mountains, I was going hard. When I was climbing up Everest, that day on Denali, like those were intense physical pushes. But if I even had little micro downtimes, like there's a storm blowing in, okay, I could be really anxious about the storm and this, and sit around my tent and be all nervous, have all this energy. I'd be like, okay, this is a moment where there's nothing I can do physically. I need to recharge now. I need to lie in my tent mm -hmm. and be still and be ready to push. And so understanding when to go hard, but also when to recover, to me, is so important. Uh, I love it. I mean, it's a, was it, is it the Prieto principle or the 80-20, that notion of like being efficient and like doing the sort of minimum effective dose was what I was reading about yeah. last night. Yeah. But that notion of how central it is to be, like sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a minimum effective dose to, for example, for muscle gain. Right, yeah. but beyond that, you're you're actually yeah. the marginal you know, gains like, are either negative or very slow. <laughs> exactly, like the, the growth curve is not exponential. For right, more of the better. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. I think the analogy was like you, you, there's a there's a boiling point for water. Making it hotter doesn't necessarily right. make it you know boil more. Right. Um, so that's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. So what what do you feel like? I mean, this is actually I guess I'm getting a little bit more technical, but um, it sounds like you used your your time very efficiently. If you were to translate that to say work life, um, you know, many of us, for example, are inundated by distractions. Yeah. I can speak for myself. You know, I think meditation has helped to slow my mind and and to be more mindful, both of like stress response. So like, where am I getting anxious and actually being aware of it instead of just being in it? Um, but the way I like to describe it is, how can I how can I increase the amount of time that I'm at cause rather than at effect? Yeah. By at effect, I mean, you know, I'm basically resp in response because someone's emailing me. How can I spend as much of my time as possible causing my life yeah. as opposed to responding to other people's designs yeah. on my life? Yeah. So if you could translate, like what have been, how have you applied, what are the principles that you've, you've applied and taken from your mountaineering experience to life in general? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that I've learned throughout this process, at least what comes up for me when you ask this question, has to do with, I don't know if you want to call it balance or compartmentalizing, um, 
But one of the interesting and unique challenges that I faced with this was that, and to me, only honestly, one of the most beautiful things was that I built this with my fiance. Mm. Right? We built this together. We'd worked together for a number of years. She had helped manage some of my triathlon sponsors and thing. But this was like a full dive in, like you know, potentially a hundred hours a week, taking over both of our lives. The reason that we're still fiance and not married is because this literally took over our lives so much that planning a wedding in the middle of this, um, not for lack of love or the fact that we definitely intend to be together for the rest of our lives, but was just like, whoa, like this took over our lives yeah. in a really cool way. Because to me, having that shared experience with somebody who is my life partner was extra special. Mm -hmm. However, it required us to ask ourselves these hard questions in any like relationship of like, okay, where does like this like intense drive that we both have to achieve this goal end? And when does our like romantic relationship start? And when is, what's our business context like? And how are we in business meetings versus our where we're working? You know, we work from home, but where does our office work at home separate from our you know you know emotionally bonded you know relationship more you know, those lines get blurry yeah um and that has you know i won't lie like we've had our moments of course of course but we have learned a little bit um and to your question we've learned a little bit how to compartmentalize and balance as well as be present in those moments so um, you know, your question was more about distractions, mm -hmm. but I think, or efficiency, if you say, I was like, oh God, I get a million emails every single day. And like, I just like, you know, I'm, I'm just selling this one thing and then I get pulled in this other direction or whatever. Like everyone has different set of circumstances, but I do believe you probably could maybe answer a hundred emails in two hours. If you said, I'm turning off my phone, I'm doing nothing, this, I'm not gonna, you know, talk maybe for me I'm not gonna talk to Jenna right now about what something else like I'm gonna be doing this and then that is efficient use of time so that later on in the night I can say to Jenna like when we eat dinner like it's gonna be us like talking about something that's not this like piece of work I don't know that's just like an analogy from my own life but I do think that applies across the board in terms of being present like if it's present and it's like it's time to work super hard like be present and work super hard but like texting five people and trying to send an email and maybe the TV's on in the background and then like you're also like, oh, my kid's home. I should be a good dad right now or this. And I don't have kids, but I'm, <laughs> um, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, we're, I feel like that ends up, you're doing a lot of things on a really medium level rather than shutting out the noise from a number of things, which maybe those people or things might be like, oh, wait, why didn't you respond to my email faster? I'd be like, that's because I was having dinner with my wife. And like, you know, it's important for me to be present for that. I'll call you back when I'm done or whatever. So I don't know, maybe that's not a good answer, but it's about, I think it's about efficiency and being present rather than doing, I mean, we have these phones in our hand that can track distract us, you know, literally nonstop. Totally. Um, and I'm guilty. I mean, I'm guilty of that. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, so um, it's a constant battle, but it's something that I'm like, if we go back to Vipassana, if nothing else, I would say pre having this, experience of meditation I may have been unaware of those actions and I do not always succeed with my intentions mm -hmm. but I do catch myself being like oh you're doing that thing right now where you're not present with the person you're in this room with because you're doing five other things like and I catch myself and go oh okay like yeah. you know reset just like when you're meditating and you can't get mad at yourself when your mind wanders like it's gonna happen but the whole practice is like oh my mind's wandering right back come back to breath oh my mind's wanting to come back to breath right and so I would equate it to that kind of thing um, in terms of figuring out how to be present and efficient in those moments. So focus, you mentioned a couple things as I listen, but fo focus, so you're focused and you have clear boundaries, it sounds like, which, yeah. is, which is beautiful. And 
a few things. Two, you also have an incredibly uh, powerful partnership. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine once said to me, because I'm looking to call in that type of partnership, and he said, it's, it's no coincidence there's no single presence. Yeah. And by that, I took it to mean, you know, um, anyone looking to operate at the highest level has, whether they be a man or a woman, has likely an incredible partnership in their life. Yeah. So um, I honor Jenna. And one of the other things I heard from you is the, is the notion of the phone. Um, one of the th interesting things, so I, I haven't told you this yet, but I was at a um, conference this past weekend with the leading functional medicine doctors in the world. And our relation to our phone came up as actually a huge context of health, right? Because yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a, it, it forms addiction. It literally, you know, triggers the same sort of um, dopamine, dopamine release. exactly release yeah. in our brains. And so, kids, especially without filters, you know, I mean, kids are growing up now, a whole generation, um, with an you know an automatic response to the phone and a, and a relationship, oftentimes, which isn't healthy. Um, but they gave a couple tips, which I thought was interesting. I just want to share with folks, which is turning off all your notifications. One, so like you only check when intentionally. You're like, oh, I'm going to check this exactly. Now. Um, a second one, which was really interesting, and I just bought these uh, blue blocking glasses. But like two hours before you go to sleep, in order to get better sleep, um, now at least with the iPhone, you can turn on night mode. Yeah, so you can I just it, it that on the, my yeah, It's a big difference. It, it's huge. Yeah, and I bought these blue blockers so that if I'm working on my computer, that basically your brain it affects the mitochondria. I won't go huge into detail, but basically it allows you to enter into that that state of getting ready for rest and having deeper quality quality sleep because that's basically when your brain takes out the trash, so to speak. Um, but then also. Um, not having your your phone in your bedroom. Yeah. So like, because I noticed for me, exactly. For me, I noticed like first thing, all the time in the morning, you're like, boop, you yeah, know, it's like checking social media. Exactly. Yeah. Talking about being at effect, you're automatically at effect, and then also you don't get the same quality of sleep. I find at least when I have it by my bed. So for the last three four days, I've just had it out here. Yeah. And and. It's a little disorienting, it's, right? It's disorienting, but it's good. But it's magic. For sure, for it's sure. like I got an old school alarm clock. I'm going to work on actually establishing enough of a morning routine to where I wake up ideally by myself, yeah. getting the blackout curtains. So needless to say, I, I got I digressed a little bit, but but to your point of, of focus, which you obviously exemplify um, at, a, at, a, at an extraordinary level, it was a couple of, of quick tips I wanted to share with folks that I just got myself yeah, that yeah. you, no, that you uh, were catalyst for. Yeah. So what about um, what about kind of change topics a little bit slightly in terms of your reflecting time? So you talked about resting and, and being able to go into a meditative state and how critical that was when you needed to sort of put on the gas. Were there any great books or resources that mm. you read in the course of your your hundred days, or even that you're reading now that yeah. you that you yeah. really recommend um, that speak either to your journey or you just found inspiring? Yeah, there's a, there's it's funny. So one book that and this is this is going back to my childhood um, that my mother uh, read to me out loud when I was a kid that still I think it speaks a lot to me is a book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Um, you're familiar with that Dan book? Dan Millman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so I came across that book, I don't know, I was eight or ten years old or something like that, but in, well into adulthood, that message in that book um, continued to speak to me, um, for sure. What was the core message um, that resonated most? I think it's a, if that uh, that idea, and I think it was 
it probably went over my head at 10, although some things sort of seeped in there a little bit. But around that sort of, that, that power, but sort of honing our power and understanding our own power in our bodies and our minds. And, you know, he goes through a really significant setback. He's this gymnast, and then he gets in this motorcycle accident, and he goes in this deep depression around that. So even though I've recounted this book long before I was even tragically injured, that even that theme of overcoming that and figuring out the sort of interplay between that um, certainly speaks to me um, around that. But um, I'm trying to think what else. You know, the best book I read, no, I read a ton, but the book that I read this year that spoke to me has nothing to do with mountains, but definitely has to do with um, having a really big goal and having a million setbacks was uh, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. Um, which uh, I, I, I say this um, not because I'm a Nike-sponsored uh, athlete, but because um, it is, Phil Knight's a guy who founded Nike, for yep. those who don't know, uh, I think most people know that. Um, but his book is a great, I love that book because it's not about his success at Nike. It's all about process. It like starts when he has this idea for the shoe company in the mid '60s, um, and I'm from Oregon, so we've got a little like special Oregon love in there. It's all based in Oregon, and he just has this passion. He's like, "No, this is gonna be a thing. Like shoe company is gonna be a thing." And like you go back in the mid '60s, '70s, like having a big sh footwear and apparel company is like we we think of that as normal now, but like that was not a thing. People were like, "Yeah, you wear shoes, whatever." Like it's not like this branded like right. cool trend like thing. Now, of course, it's the largest apparel brand in the world, and. It wasn't one year and they had success or two years. We're talking about like 20 plus years where like day in and day out, he's like, shit, if I like this loan falls through with the bank, the whole thing's bankrupt and he's like running this company and he's got this incredibly supportive wife and he's like in the middle of the night, like tearing his hair out, like what am I gonna do this time? And it's like this, oh, like it's not, it's like, again, like this is over a long duration of time, but he had this vision. He had, I mean, now what we know of his Nike is because of this huge long-term vision, but a commitment to that day in and day out. So to me, it's like a great entrepreneurial tale, um, but it's also just like, I think the essence of what's being talked about in this book is very similar to process and high performance we've talked about in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why, you know, my passion is, you know, I have a personal passion for the outdoors, but I think that the outdoors and in my case, my canvas is physical feats of endurance can teach us so many things. So I think that the essence of this book, which is a lot of sports company, is not about sports at all. It's, we're talking about the same things and I relate to that so much. I'm like, oh my God, like, yeah, that's a setback. Oh man, I remember that time where like the whole thing almost failed or this or that. And I think we all can relate to that in some totally. capacity. Um, so for me, that was a, a fun book to read this year because I definitely resonated a lot with just like the, the hustle and the struggle and the determination to figure it out like and when everything seems lost to at least not pull the covers up over a bed and stay in bed which man i've wanted to do many times in my own life <laughs> um but just be like it's gonna be a hard day and a hard week or month or year but like we're gonna somehow figure it out so my hat is off to him and it's incredible incredible story i love that book this year yeah. phil knight's shoe dogs yeah i haven't read that one yet but i'm on it yeah yeah check it out any any other resources that come to mind Oh, I'm trying to think. I, I wish I had better. I, I feel like I'm gonna. We're gonna end this interview, and then I'll be like, oh, these five things. I should have said it. Um, but um, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pass. I, I can't. Nothing else is like, like right. immediately popping so up. So shoe my dogs mind. and the way of the uh, of his horde. Yeah, those are those are two of my two of my top favorites. One from uh, 20 years ago, and one from this year. That okay. have both spoken to me uh, for sure. For sure. Beautiful. Let me ask you this. What about one of the other tenants I've found with some of the other peak performers uh, that I've that I've spoken with, um, 
this notion of kind of focusing out. So you t you talked about um, focusing out in terms of the people that were watching um, and and feeling a responsibility to them. Obviously, you were in a partnership, and, and the partnership was was I imagine hugely inspirational. But you were also um, really pushing for this for this nonprofit. What's what's the what role has service or that notion of uh, being a stand for something bigger than yourself? What role has has that played in your life, and how do you see that um, that ethos uh, playing playing forward in your life? Yeah, you know, I think that um, you know one of the things that I look back on now in reflection um, is I feel very fortunate to have had some pretty remarkable role models in my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know. My, my parents are divorced, um, but they've somehow, you know, continued to get along and have this great relationship where, where I feel surrounded by love at a graduation or a wedding or whatever. We can all come together and break bread around the same table. Um, and so uh, because of that, I've been able to take, I think, a lot of the other valuable lessons that my parents have to give, um, one of which um, that manifests in the work that I'm doing now um, is around healthy lifestyle eating. My dad's an organic farmer in Hawaii. My mother um, and my stepfather found a chain of natural foods grocery stores in the Pacific Northwest. And um, funny enough, as a kid, I was kind of like, ugh, like organic food, like, uh, mm -hmm. so annoying. And, <laughs> and certainly, you know, I was born in 1985, but through the early 90s or whatever, it was like long before like buzzwords like sustainability, local, organic, like these were like fringe concepts. And I'm happy to see that every year that's more and more and more commonplace. Um, but, and also more accessible, not just for the higher income brackets, but for across the board in terms of equity issues um, with that um, as demand grows. But I will say that it wasn't until I got out on my own a little bit um, and you know spread my wings as a young man that I was like, oh man, they were so right this whole time. Yeah. Um, and it took me years. I mean, like I can remember like fights as a kid, like, my buddy at school has Oreos and Dorito chips in his lunch every day, and I have this, like, stupid, like, whatever, salad and, like, this organic fruit leather or something. I'm like, all the kids are making fun of me. You weren't the cool like, kid. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Like, I was like, this sucks. Then, of course, um, you did wind up climbing Everest, so yeah. that's pretty good. So I was just kind of like, that was, like, a struggle. But then I realized that the healthy lifestyle that they imbued in me not only allowed me to have a body in which I've been able to achieve some great things, but more so, I think a lot of my other successes, both in the classroom with my education and things like that, have, have a direct result of having a positive and healthy environment. So I mentioned their emotional health that they instilled in me, and sort of even though in a sort of broken marriage, being able to keep that sort of love and compassion around us as well as, um, you know, in the actual physical health of you know, eating well and exercising, that kind of thing. Um, and so as I've moved forward to my life, I've realized like, wow, like I was really fortunate to have that. Not everybody has that. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's um, probably um, in the minority of people that have that type of, you know, background or um, experience. And so really a lot of my passion 
um, drives from trying to be that person. Um, you know, obviously I can't be everyone's mother or father or in their home or whatever, but I do believe that you can touch people's lives even in a short duration of time. Um, it, you know, it can't, obviously there's levels of layers of depth that you can create, um, but I do believe that being able to have this conversation, being able to be in the media around this project. Yeah, there was, you know, hundreds of millions of media impressions globally on all different platforms about this project, and each one of those, including right now, has given me the ability to say like, hey, I stand for this, I believe in this. And maybe people take different stories away from this, or those kids in those classrooms that I mentioned might be thinking like, oh, I remember that Snapchat from the summit of Everest, like no one ever done that before, that's super cool. But they also heard the other part, which was about health and wellness and eating healthy and all this sort of stuff. It's been able, you know, I've been the opportunity to, you know, be invited to Johns Hopkins to speak at the Global Obesity Prevention Center with some of the top Amazing. doctors around public health and these type of things. So it's opened the doors to having this conversation. Am I, you know, I'm, am I, am I, you know, I, maybe I'm just one drop in the bucket, but I'd rather be a drop in the bucket helping towards something that I believe in, you know, with passion um, than not doing anything at all. And I attribute that, although I didn't come into my own own as providing service the same way that I do now until, you know, older in my life, um, it was certainly a direct result of seeing that role modeled in my life as a kid. Role modeling. Yeah, they say actually in the context of, 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 of the development of a child, actually the single greatest impact you can have is having one positive role model in their life. Yeah. Whether that's parental or non-parental. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the largest determinant. What, what, there's a couple, just a few, few questions left. Um, what if you were to say like three tenets for like maybe a young person that's watching and it may be maybe something traditional or maybe something that you know is, is outside the box what are three tenets to living a healthy lifestyle for you three tenets to living a healthy lifestyle that's a great question um, well, I'm gonna start I'm gonna start with what I think uh, is a somewhat easiest tenant we've talked a little bit about it but that is that is food you know I think that we are a product of what we put into our bodies um, and you know I'm not gonna go on and on the science of you know saturated fats and sugars and all this sorts of stuff and processed foods but um, I do think that there is an idea out there that food is organic food and produce and things healthy food is expensive and yes like walk into Whole Foods and fill up your cart like yeah I can barely afford that like that's expensive for sure um, but I think one of the things that I learned people ask me what did you eat on these mountains well in Nepal the Nepalese Sherpa which is a race of people who have been you know lived in the high country um, in the high altitudes for a long time they eat dalbat more or less three meals a day seven days a week which is lentils and rice and a little bit of vegetables and a, those people are some of the strongest people I've ever met, and they're healthy. And that is not an expensive diet. Like the GDP yeah. per capita of Nepal is like $2,000 per year or something like that. We're talking about, we're basically talking about rice and beans. Um, and so if you really distill it down, like that's accessible for every single person. Um, and maybe that's not realistic or palatable. I don't eat the same three meals three <laughs> day either. Um, um, but I did when I was in Nepal. But the point is, is one of my tenants would be eating healthy where you can, um, you know, processed food and putting that in your body the second you take that out of your body and reintroduce it you'll realize like how much that is throwing you around emotionally no um, the second would be exercise and I think that this is not taken um, I think this is taken and to the extreme I think people would easily project on me and fairly so like when I say exercise I mean doing an Ironman triathlon or climbing Mount Everest or whatever but like 
let me tell you, like people ask me, like, what can I do to exercise? Walk. Walk for 30 minutes a day. Like, that will keep you healthy. My stepfather, um, very healthy guy, does not play sport, doesn't like run or anything like that. He gets up every single morning with a routine and walks his dog for an hour in the park right by our house and then comes home. He has been doing that for decades and he is one of the thinnest, healthiest, you know, 63-year-old guys um, that, that you'll ever meet. That um, was Mandela's routine. Yeah. He would get up every morning and walk. So, um, and, you know, so that's accessible for almost everyone except for those who are, um, you know, unable to walk. Um, and then I've, I've hopefully there's a way to also exercise along those lines. I certainly have empathy for those who can't walk, having been that moment in my life. But um, the point in saying anything about walking, it's like, yeah, exercise, play sports, do something that you enjoy. But like, walk, like walk. That's Move. exercise. Move your body a yeah. little bit. Like you're sitting at your desk, like stand up, like walk around your office, go get a drink of water, like down the hall. Like that makes a difference. Um, and then the third, you know, those are two like physical things, um, is emotional health. Um, what are the tenants? I, I mean, I think I'm gonna come back to the phone. I think that's gonna be if I'm gonna leave one like a like a tangible tenant would be sit quietly every day for a little bit. Like maybe start with a minute, ten even better, fifteen even better. But like, tell me you don't have fifteen minutes in your day and like you're lying. Like I'm a busy guy. I'm a super <laughs> yeah. super busy guy. Like I'm pulled in a million directions. But like. I'm pretty sure you spent 15 minutes on Facebook today or watch Netflix or whatever. And like, that's part of your day, great. But you have 15 minutes. You have 15 minutes to put the phone away, put it in a different room. Even if you don't want to call it meditation, like breathe, sit there, like let your mind wander. Like, I don't know, maybe even be bored. Let yourself be bored for a second. Like who knows what creative like thought might come into your mind. So to sum up, simple things, healthy nutrition, there are things that are accessible no matter who you are that you can put in your body that aren't processed. Move your body. You don't have to climb Mount Everest. Walk. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes. And three, take a second to breathe. Sit alone and just listen to the sound of silence in your own brain for a second. I'm about that. I love yeah. it. Um, where can people find you online? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm on social. Uh, and after we got done with saying, put down the phone, pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah. um, put it down and yeah, pick it up. Pick it up. After those 15 minutes, pick it up. Uh, find at Colin O'Brady on social and give it a follow. <laughs> um, so at Colin O'Brady, um, that's where I'm at on social. And then Beyond72, so that's the number 72, beyond72.com is my website. And that's got all the stuff about the nonprofit work we do. Um, and uh, I've got a, I just recently spoke at TEDx Portland, and so my mm. TED Talk is going to be coming out. I think by the time this airs, that'll be out, so hopefully we add that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll um, do that. I'm excited about kind of getting that out into the world. Um, I do a lot of public speaking, both for the corporate level and kids and that kind of thing, but um, I've been a fan of TED Talks for a long time, so I'm, I'm proud, proud to have been on that stage and be able to share my story there. That's a humbling experience for me. Um, so that's another fun way. But yeah, um, I love hearing from any and everyone. Please reach out, um, whether that be social or email or whatnot. Um, it's uh, yeah, you can you can find me. I'm, I'm accessible. I'm here. Reach he's, out he's a good. He's a good one to follow. I can yeah. uh, can vouch for that. Um, Colin, I want to honor you for a moment. I want to honor you for uh, the stand that you are um, for people around the world to come from a place of. Uh, luckily, fortunately, momentary disability, but I can relate to it, having talked to my father um, about the, the profound challenges of, of taking bandages off for a full day when, when he was 
burned down to his bones. And to have gone from that to running a triathlon and then breaking the world record um, in summiting the tallest peaks around the world and, and the poles, it's such a testament to mental fortitude, to committing to a vision beyond yourself and to staying the course in, in and especially through uh, what it will mean for those beyond yourself. And so I really, I've known you now, not for that long a period of time, but a depth of, of, of quality of conversation every time we, we've connected in Israel and, and here, it's been really profound. So I really want to honor you for, for who you are and how that. you show up in the world. Thank you. Um, and my last question is, and I don't know if you can share this yet, but, and if you can't share it, I'll ask two questions. What's the next challenge? And if you can't yet answer that, I actually know what it is, but if you can't yet answer that, um, what would be the kind of final counsel you would give to maybe a young person who might be watching in terms of um, one segmented thing they could do to, to live their best life? One step they could take. Yeah. So the to answer your first question is to be. It's out there. I'm gonna launch and, and announce that soon. Um, we got a couple of big projects that are, are percolating that I'm really excited to announce, but they're not public yet. So it's gonna um, be good. It's gonna be great. Um, stay tuned on that. Um, another reason to follow that at Colin O'Brien on social. But um, in terms of what one lasting thing. Um, I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come back and share and reshare that quote that I shared earlier, which is, "He who says he can, or she who says she can, and he who says he can't, are usually both right." Um, and just remember that. Like, remember, catch yourself. Like, oh, I'm not a morning person. I can't get out of bed early to meditate or exercise. Or uh, like, we say that, and I'm guilty sometimes too, saying I can't or I won't. Just catch yourself next time. I go like, wait. Let me put, what if I flip that to and I can? Mm -hmm. what, would, what, would be the, what would be the difference there? Because that's been the difference for me, for sure. I love it. Yeah. Honored, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Thank brother. You. Yeah. Yes. That was a good one. And there you have it. An epic episode with my main man, Colin O'Brady. What an inspirational story. Uh, going from Burns and thinking he would not be able to walk again to summiting the world's tallest mountains and then crossing solo and unassisted Antarctica. And he's just getting started. Huge respect for my man, Colin O'Brady. Uh, give us a shout at Colin O'Brady, at Michael Trainer. Let us know where you're listening to the episode, what you garnered from the episode. If you enjoyed it, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes um, or wherever you're listening to the podcast. It means the world to me because it helps us to grow this community, which is super important to me. So very grateful for your listening. Please go out there and live your inspired life.